Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. Today, I'm going to talk to you about a topic that is very much related to what I do, and that is narcissistic abuse. And the uh, subheading of this is spiritual abuse, narcissistic spiritual abuse. And I, I really wanted to do this show today because I feel like um, it's real important that you understand how easy it is to get caught up in something like this and recognize if it's happening to you. So today we have with us Justin Woodbury, who was raised on a small farm out in the country on the west side of Ann Arbor, Michigan. He is a child survivor of church abuse, and he decided to start his life over at age 30 in Littleton, Colorado. There he met his best friend, soulmate, and love of his life, Emily, and they happily married a year later and started their family. But so, so Justin has been advocating for victims of abuse um, after he held his son in his arms for the first time and realized the weight of responsibility he would have as a father. Um, Justin, you've made it. Welcome. Welcome Thank to you so much. For healing. Um, you've Thank made you. it your life mission to speak out against abuse in all forms and to be a voice of victims. That's a yes. really good thing to do after you've been abused in such a severe way. Um, yes, thank you. Is that helping you with recovery? It is. It, you know, every, it seems like every time I am on another podcast or especially when my book got published or d different things like that, or I make a post on Facebook, it's just a little bit of a, of a part of my healing. I feel healed a little bit more. So yes, it is. That's awesome. And the book I'm sure was very therapeutic, very cathartic for you. It, it was, you know, I, I wrote the book with the goal in mind to, I just wanted to help one person. I figured out if I could just help one person heal, not realizing that that one person would have been me. I was the person that probably was helped the most from it. Right. And so today we're going to be talking about your book, Sheltered, but not protect, protected. Great title. This applies, you know, I've actually been able to apply that title to other situations that I've uh, been consulted on. Mm. with consulted with um and it's very true about predatory behavior so let's start um what let's start with what got you involved in this church or cult or you know whatever you want to call it yeah for sure so i was born into it a few years before my sister was born, actually right around the time my sister was born, my parents decided to start attending church. And I, I like to give the listeners when I'm on podcast a little bit of context because my parents grew up in the hippie era and they felt like they had, had experienced some scars and some hurts from the sex, drugs, rock and roll type era and stuff like that. And so when I was born, when my sister was born, they wanted to protect us from the hurts that they had experienced. And they thought by do by joining a church that taught the exact opposite of that sex, drugs and rock and roll era, that they would be able to protect us from that. And the reason I name it shelter, but not protected is because we were sheltered. We didn't watch TV or listen to the radio or anything. So we were in that sheltered environment, but everything they tried to protect us from happened right within that sheltered 
environment. But uh, long answer to your question, Randy, I was born into that type of church environment. Okay. And this is just kind of going to the end, but we're going to come back. Did you, did your parents realize the mistake that they had made? Yes, they did. They did for sure. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about what this church cult thing was. Um, so it was called um, the Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Church, but yes. you refer to it as a cult-like organization. So why do you call it that? You, you know, it's interesting. There are a lot of, and if I refer to IFB, it's the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. There are a lot of IFB type churches out there. And what was interesting is even other IFB churches called our church a cult uh, for several reasons. One, we didn't associate with any other churches. We were literally an island unto ourselves. There are lots of other IFB churches around, and we wouldn't have anything to do with them. Uh, secondly, the control that our pastor had over the congregation, he demanded unquestionable obedience from the wives. He demanded that children unquestionably obeyed the parents. Parents unquestionably, unquestionably obeyed him. And there are even situations where the wives would go to the pastor about a situation in the home and that and they would say, my husband asked me to do this. What do you think? And he would tell them to go against what their husband said to follow what he said. So he had absolute rule and authority. He had no accountability. And then the standards that were put into place, like I mentioned, there was no TV. We didn't listen to the radio. We didn't watch movies. We weren't allowed to go to the movie theater. Women had to wear long dresses. And, you know, later on in the book, I talk about how I went to college, graduated, then came back and was the music director of that church. And right before I got out of that whole cult, the pastor was going to make me enforce a dress standard that included the length of hair on women, whether it could be their hair could be curly or straight, what kind of fingernail polish they could wear, the colors that they could wear, how much makeup they could wear, how big the purses they could wear. And it was mostly, if you can't tell already, it was mostly geared towards women. Men had it pretty easy, but it just, all of those things combined made it a cult. Sounds pretty horrible. And yet, um, before you were born into this, was this all going on or did this kind of ramp up around the time that you started to um grow, you know be cognizant of what was around you it seems as if it was a progression of changes yes it was you're exactly right so the ifb has been around for years <clears throat> when when the church started and when it, when my parents started attending the church it was not like that at all it just seemed like a bunch of professing Christians wanting to get together and learn more about God. And there's a lot of positives about that. And I even say in my book that I had a great childhood growing up. It wasn't until, and I believe, Randy, what happened was when the children turned into teenagers and they started questioning these standards that we were told was from the Bible. So for instance, we were, we were told emphatically that there is no reference to alcohol there is no reference to alcohol in the bible that any references to wine was grape juice unless it was a negative reference then it was alcohol but that's one of the things we were taught and we believed it until we were 
11, 12, 13, 14. And then we started reading the Bible for ourselves. And we were saying, well, what about this passage? Jesus turned water into wine. And that's when that's when things started to get really bad because it was easier to instill this fear of God in us when we were younger and we didn't know any better. But as we got older and started questioning things, then it started to get ugly. So it was a progression and it got worse as we got older and wiser because the the lies, the deceit, the control, the manipulation had to get stronger. You know, as you're saying that, uh, we were talking before we we went on air um, and you asked me, do I think that this preacher was a narcissist and you just confirmed it for me mm. and I'll tell you why with narcissists they're much easier when children are compliant it gets really tough when children start forging an identity mm. that's when the clash happens so you just firmed it up um, okay. it's very interesting it's really wow. interesting so we kind of got that answer wow. um, he said that um, many of the rules were intended to keep us pure, especially the younger generation. And so instead of dating, what were the rules? Oh, boy. So I could have written a complete book on this, but I'll, I'll sum it up quickly. We were taught that if we thought about, or let me back up. It, we, we were taught if, yeah, if we thought about of someone of the opposite sex, that it was considered mental impurity if we had any feelings for them, if we liked them, if we were attracted to them, it was considered emotional impurity and any type of physical contact, uh, any type whatsoever was considered physical impurity. And so the, the, what we were taught was unless that person is your wife, you can't think about them. You can't like them. You can't touch them. And then in order to get a wife, it was it was a twisted form of courtship uh, where, you know, the father of the boy would go to the father of the girl and they would talk and decide that this was God's will. And then the boy and the girl would have a couple of weeks to get to know each other. And then there was an engagement and then a marriage very quickly. So it was, again, very cultish, but that's that's kind of what we were taught. So, uh, you know, I, I talk about my sexual abuse when I was a junior in high school. I, when, up to that point, never held a girl's hands, never liked a girl, never was allowed to think about a girl. And if I did any of those things, I felt really guilty. Yeah, guilt is, is the biggest uh, motivator for following these kind of uh, crazy roles. Um, and that's, in, that's embedded into you. And um, so I understand that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you're describing, this actually, you know, this, um, these matches between families um, goes on in certain, you know, ethnicities. It happens in yes. Indian, you know, in the yes. Indian race and um, also in the uh, very, uh, very religious Jewish, Jewish sects. It's okay. the same thing. Okay. Yeah. And so it's very uh, antiquated. Mm -hmm. Very antiquated. Yeah. At some point, you, um, a, a woman in this church befriended you. So how did that start out? It started off very innocently, as most things do, I guess. 
they came to the church when I was seven or eight. Very nice family. Their kids were a few years younger than I was. The husband, Fred, was just a nice, funny guy, liked hanging around him. And then the wife, she was a bit of an anomaly because in a church where children were com commanded to respect their elders and there was this this separation from them. Uh, they they, were, they certainly weren't friends. They were elders. They were people we had to listen to and obey. Carolyn was a bit of an anomaly where she would sit down and talk to me, especially when, and she admitted later on that this was grooming. She didn't call it grooming, but she just said, I had this nat unnatural attraction to you when you turned 13. But I noticed from the time I was 13 on that she would come and sit down to, next to me after church and say, tell me about your life. What are you up to? What What is your favorite thing to do outside of church? And she really took an interest in me and and became what I thought was just this friend and a, a trusted friend because she was a faithful church attender. She wore the long dresses and she went to the altar almost every Sunday crying about something that she had been convicted about during a message and she sang in the choir and she played in the orchestra and she was a Sunday school teacher. So she was a someone who I trusted completely. And then she became what I thought was just an innocent friend. And I, I had no idea what her true intentions were at the time. She was predatory. Very predatory. So what happened? How did all this change with her? Yeah, for this sure. is so, really the crux of your book. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and it happened, and I, I point this out too all the time, that it happened right in front of my parents. In fact, 95% of what I'm about to tell you happened when my parents were either in the same room or in the other room, because that's what predators do. They're just really good. So what happened is I was homeschooled, and when I was 15, my sister graduated from high school and at her open house, there was a incident that happened between Carolyn and I, I talk about in my book, but then the most of what happened that I talk about in my book was when I was a junior in high school, I was being homeschooled at the time and Carolyn called to talk to my mom and my mom was out shopping. So I was home alone. And when she found out that I was home alone, she said, Oh, by the way, I had a dream about you the other night. And I wanted to know what the dream was about. And then she wouldn't tell me. And then I was like, tell me, no, no. She's like, no, it wouldn't be appropriate. So we just kind of played back and forth. I had no idea where it was going. And then finally she told me, and the, the dream was that her husband had died and that her and I had gotten married. And she said it was the best sex I had ever had. Ooh. And so as I'm sure you can imagine as a boy, as a, a 17 year old boy who had never thought about a girl liked a girl touched a girl or, or whatever at least tried not to and felt guilty for doing afterwards um hearing this from this trusted friend of my mom's just i mean i've been asked before did you know it was wrong i had no idea i had no idea that this was inappropriate i was just like ooh, maybe there's a opportunity here where i can learn or, or whatever so um that turned into about a three month long very twisted, very dark sexual, I don't like to call it a relationship, but it was a sexual abuse relationship uh, where it it ended with her 
starting to conspire to have me help her kill her husband because we didn't believe in mar uh, divorce and remarriage. So the only way that she thought that we could ever be together, but by the way, she was uh, had four kids and was in her mid thirties at the time. But and you were how started, old? I was when seventeen. It, when it started, okay. Fifteen when it started. Seventeen when during this time I'm describing. Okay, all right. So still a minor. Um, but the only way that she felt that we would ever be able to be together was if her husband was dead because she couldn't, she didn't think that she could divorce him. So she started to conspire to have me help her kill her husband. Wow. Yeah. That is so messed up. So cruel. Yeah. Did you feel like you... Were you attracted to this woman initially? I was attracted to her. She was in in the small circles that I was in. Remember, we never got out in the world, never watched movies and stuff. In, in the small circles, she was an attractive person. And so, yeah, I, I was attracted to her. And so your parents never really picked up on the inappropriate behavior because it was all under this guise of this trusted church? Yeah, it's interesting. My mom never did. My dad did. My my dad had this sixth sense about him where he, one day he saw an interaction between the two of us and she was very obvious and she exploited any opportunity she could to do something uh, sexual. And so I think my dad picked up on it uh, about a month into this three month sexual abuse situation and he sat down with myself, my mom, my sister, and he said, I want you to stay away from Carolyn Mathia. I don't trust her. I think that she is after you, that she, his exact words, Randy, were she was looking for a hard body. I don't know why he said that, but when he said that, my mom burst out in anger and said, Stan, you're a perverted man. Don't ever talk about my friend like that. Mm. And she said, Justin, don't, she didn't say, don't listen to your father, but she just said, Stan, this is, this is ridiculous. You you need to stop this right now. You're, you're making things up. And so after that, he never said another word. So yes, to answer your question, my dad did pick up on it. My mom had, had no clue. She trusted her. Understood. Yeah. I mean, that was, this was supposed to be a safe umbrella of, you know, of, people of congregation of rules of law you know all it was supposed to be safe yeah so everything that fell under that was supposed to be okay um yeah. you know and uh that's why this is so dangerous mm. because you know it's like cults you know and i tell people when you when you get into a relationship with a narcissist it's very cult-like yes um and you are conditioned to buy into the nonsense and the ever moving goalposts and it nothing just seems to fit together but yet you buy into it it's very mm -hmm. much like that mm -hmm. um, so you were sort of involved in this relationship or whatever it was um for about two years well it y yes i guess so yeah the the one isolated incident when i was 15 it didn't really happen again until I was 17. So when I when I think back, it was really a three month period 
about the spring of when I, so it was May, I believe it was May 5th. And then it went on throughout that summer. So it was about a three month thing, but it, the first initial, I guess, incident happened when I was 15, but it didn't continue to happen until I was 17. If that makes sense. Wow. Did you feel guilty for what you were doing? Never guilty, dirty. I felt dirty towards the end. And I tell a story in my book about what really made it all come together for me. And yeah, I, I feel like the one word I can describe is, is guilty or, or dirty. I, I didn't feel guilty because I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. So how did you have the, these, inevitably they're going to mow the lawn during my, during my podcast. Okay. So it's <laughs> just the way it is. Um, so how did you not feel guilty when you were breaking all the tenets of, of this church and this leader? Yeah, that's a great question because the, a leader in the church was telling me that it's okay. And, you know, she was, she was really good. And I was referring to her as the leader. She was a trusted leader in the, in the church okay. and she was really good at, you know, here, here's an example. We'd be, she'd be telling me because I had no idea it's sex, anything like, so, so she was like a sex educator and she'd be telling me talking about oral sex or, or whatever. And then on a dime, she would turn and she's like, you know, I hope you obey your parents and I hope that you have this desire to go on and serve God. And then she would like preach, kind of give me spiritual advice and stuff. And so confused yes guilty never never felt guilty because this trusted person was involving themselves in it and so i whether it was subconscious or conscious i had convinced myself this is okay it wouldn't be and, and this is so weird but and that's what happens when when the forbidden when the when the normal stuff like liking a girl my own age became forbidden then the really forbidden stuff became normal for me because i remember during that time during that summer a girl my own age asked me out on a date and she made reference that she wanted to, it was like, I'm going to be a one night stand type thing. And I remember telling her, um, no, I'm saving myself for my wife. And I didn't even think twice about that. But then I called up and would have phone sex with Carolyn or, or something like that. It, it just bizarre. I know, but it's that when the normal becomes forbidden, then the forbidden became normal. And that's what it was like for me. That's just, it's, that's so interesting psychologically, you know, <clears throat> that you would have this split, but this does happen yeah. uh, in children who are alienated by their parents, by narcissistic parents. They have mm -hmm. this split where they talk from two different point perspectives at the same time and they conflict, but the child doesn't see that. So yeah. I understand that kind of thing it's like it, it doesn't make sense when you look back at it but in your mind this was reality and it was your truth yeah it, it really was and i it's hard to explain i think other victims can understand what it's like to trust somebody and have that split but it yeah it's just it, it's easy to it's easy to say it's hard to explain very hard, hard to even explain. harder to understand but Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I, I always 
think, you know, I would love to get into the head of a child going through this and just experience this because mm-hmm. there's no way to understand it. And it's very difficult for people who are um, targeted by yes. this kind of, uh, this child who is hurting another parent. It's very difficult to understand that. But I yes. do understand the mechanisms that are going on. And so uh, I understand it in, you know, intelligently. Yes. Cognitively. yes but I'll never understand how it feels. Um, Was she doing this to any other children? Not that I know of. Certainly I suspect that it was. In fact, that's, that's how this whole thing came out publicly or privately, but that's how, that's what led me to go to my pastor a year later and say, Hey, watch out for this woman. Because, you know, in my book, I talk about, I, I, the next year I graduate from high school and I went to college and the summer that I graduated from high school, something happened where I just couldn't keep it in any longer. And I went and I told my dad about it, but I swore him to secrecy. And so he promised he wouldn't repeat what had happened. And then I, I go to college and he called me a couple of weeks before spring break of my freshman year. And he said, Justin, I've kept my end of the deal. I haven't told anybody about what happened, but she's praying on other young men at the church. And you have to say something to the pastor because she's going to do the same thing to you, to them that she did to you. And do you want that on your conscience? And of, of course I didn't because the, and I, I didn't even realize all of the ramifications, Randy, but I had at least realized what it felt like to feel dirty for two years. And so I was like, I, do, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. So what caused me to come out with it publicly was fear that she was preying on other young men at the church. Now, by this point, did you have a perspective of an outsider looking in or were you still sort of caught up in the whole thing? Yeah, completely caught up in the whole thing. Didn't have any idea. And and the reason why is because the college I went to was the pastor's brother-in-law and it was another cult college. It was it was a it was an extension of the cult that I had grow, grow, grown up in. So seeing it for any other, seeing it for anything else other than the fact that I would have to go to my pastor and confess adultery to him, that that's that's what I saw it. And I knew by going back in spring break and telling him that in his mind and in everybody's mind that would find out about it in the church, it would be considered fornication or adultery where there's equal blame and that I was just as guilty for stealing another man's wife as she was for cheating on her husband. So I did not see it as anything other than that. So when you eventually did tell the pastor, I would think he would, he didn't believe you, right? Well, he believed me. He, he believed me, but he scored the blame. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, I was sitting in a big boy restaurant. I remember the booth, the color of it. It's just amazing how vivid certain memories are. But I remember just trying to not have to tell him the entire story. And I just said, hey, by the way, Mrs. Mathia is a predator. And I didn't even say predator. I just said, I don't trust her. I think that she has bad intentions. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And so I started to try to tell him without actually telling him. And then he started asking me questions like, well, did she ever touch you? 
And I said, yes. And he said, well, above the waist or below the waist? And I had said both. And he's like, in the pants, inside the pants or outside? So he actually asked me question after question. And I really got this impression, Randy, that he was almost living vicariously through me, that it was more to him than just trying to get to the bottom of a, of a horrible situation, almost that he was getting some type of enjoyment out of it until finally he kept asking and he knew every, by that time he knew almost everything, but then he started talking to me about oral sex and asking me if she'd ever performed that on me and stuff. And at that point I was like, you know what perv, like you, I've told you everything that you need to know to make an informed decision to keep her away from other boys in the church. So I'm going to shut the hell up and let you d d deal with it. So I started lying after that because I was done. I mean, I was shaking the entire time. I mean, the whole thing was just emotionally so exhausting. It was almost wor worse reliving it to him than it was having what happened. Um, but he, he, he did believe me and he scored the blame at that big boy restaurant, he's like, okay, he's like, you are 49% to blame for this. And uh, Carolyn is 51% to blame because she was older, but that's how he scored the blame. So he, he, yeah. Wow. Sounds like, yeah, he really got off on this whole story. Yeah. A little bit mm -hmm. too much. Yeah. He was uh, very repressed, sexually repressed. I'm, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> and this kind of thing was just enjoyable. Wow. Yeah. You know, I noticed that you use the name of this predatory woman. Yeah. Um, is this her actual name? It is. Okay. It is. And go go ahead. No, I was going to say. So, how do you how do you feel about being you know being liable? Did you have you spoken to an attorney before you use this name? Yeah, I did. It's a really good question. I mention a lot of names in my book. Carolyn is the only name that I use. Uh, that I didn't change. So all the other names I changed and I intentionally did that for a lot of reasons. One, I believe most of the people in my book were just good people who made wrong decisions. And so I don't see the sense in the whole point of my book was to spread awareness and to call attention to abuse that goes on with churches, but not to necessarily name people and air their dirty laundry. So, but I also met with a lawyer and he told me that to be on the safe side, that I should change names because I could be, you know, held liable or, or held responsible for slander or whatever. He did tell me that slander, proof of slander is on the person that is feeling slandered. And, and so he's like, you're probably fine if you use names, but he's like, I'd be on the safe side and not. But at the time, I felt like if Carolyn ever sued me for slander, it would draw more attention to her than it would to me. And I would have welcomed because, because when I did tell my pastor and everything, he never reported it to the police, which he was mandated by law to do so. He never reported it to the police. My parents never reported it to the police. And by the time I realized that it should have been reported, that the statute of limitations had just passed. And so the thought of being in a courtroom with Carolyn for whatever reason, uh, I actually, it's not like I wanted it, but I certainly didn't mind it. Plus, she's still a predator, I believe. I don't think she's ever been stopped. I don't think she's ever been discovered. And so if I use her name and I use her last name and I'll even tag her in posts sometimes on Facebook, it's because I want people to know that there's still a predator out there 
Um, it's not that I haven't forgiven and moved on from it. It, 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 I have, but she's still a predator. And I believe that her name, she, I, I don't know. I, I feel like she needs to die with this name of predator on her, in her reputation. You know, this obviously had a huge impact on you. Um, while it was going on, what impact did it continue to have on you? Oh man. So instantly I turned to eating about pr probably a year after it happened. I began finding comfort in overeating. And that was a pattern that continued until about a year ago uh, where I was able to finally, right after my book was published, it was like, something happened where I was able to start really healing. And I had, I had experienced some healing as I was writing the book. And I talk about that in my book, but definitely, you know, some people turn to drugs, some people turn to alcohol. Um, I turned to, to eating and gained over a hundred pounds as a result. I also lost any form of self-respect because I did go to college and then I did go back and was the music director for six years in the very church that I had been raised up in. And I was under the very pastor that had, who was a narcissist and who was an abuser. And if I had had any shred of self-respect, I wouldn't have stepped foot back into that church and put up with what I put up with for six years. So it really set me in a downward spiral in, in into this trajectory of just no self-respect, no confidence, uh, overeating, de depression, uh, sleeping a lot and stuff like that. So for about, well, from the time I was 18 to the time I was 38, 39, even 40, I, I lived with this baggage at, that I point back to as a result of what happened when I was, you know, 15 and then 17. Wow. It really changed who you were took away your innocence and uh you know what happens is you become when you're controlled this way you become res uh, reliant on outside validation mm. instead mm. of inside and you yes. so you're only as good as you are to told you are in the moment yes yes and it's it's um it's one thing that keeps emotional hostages in these kind of situations stuck because they don't have that internal sense of validation. They're waiting for everybody else to tell them they're okay. Wow. And, um, and that makes you very, uh, it makes predator, it makes it very easy for predators to pick you up, you know, yes. to, for the radar. So, um, you know, when I work with people, I really work towards getting internal validation because once you have that, um, you're invincible and nobody can mess with you again. Wow. Uh, but narcissists teach us to not trust our radar. Yes. That's oh my gosh. I've, I've never heard it put like that before, Randy, but that is exactly what I went through for 20 plus years. That's exactly what I, no sense of inner validation had to have it from my pastor or from whoever that is fascinating. I, I never put the two and two together, but that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, it was it it took a lot of courage for you to publish this book. I mean, I know because I write books and I've used names. Um, I've changed some. I've used some, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. I've I've done yes. the same kind of thing, you know. And when you finally put that book out there, it's like it, you just feel like the floors dropped out from under you. You just don't know what's going to happen. It's like, uh oh, here we go. Yes. So. Have you heard from anybody in the in the church since you've written this book? I, yeah, and you know it's interesting. I, I guess I would maybe categorize wh who I've heard from in three different ways. Uh, probably one way I'd categorize it is other victims. You know, right after I announced that I was writing this book, this girl who was several years younger than me by the time I was the youth pastor, not the youth pastor, but the music director at the church. She was 12, 13, 14, but she wrote to me and she said, Justin, the entire time we attended that church, my dad was molesting me. And she had these horrible stories that told me that just broke my heart. And uh, I, with her permission, I exposed him on social media and I don't, I don't, yeah, there's a, it's a long story there. So I would have victims reach out to me and say, you know, me too, and, and kind of affirm what I had gone through. Then there's a small group of supporters, and I call them closet supporters because they never liked my page. They never made public comments on my social media, but they would text me or they would email me and say, I had no idea, and I'm so sorry. And then there's a larger group that I would say of people who were haters. You know, when you attack, when you call out abuse, it's, being, it's viewed as attacking the church attacking God's church and it is not looked kindly on. And so I had a lot of people attacking me. I had people threatening to sue me. I even had somebody threaten me with physical harm uh, that because I was going to expose their story. And uh, so I had a lot, a lot of that, a lot of haters. Um, so yeah, I, a lot of people reached out for sure. And I, some people think I'm going to hell. Some people think that I'm no longer, a Christian and that I'm fighting against God and that I hate God and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's funny when you, they, they say you're hurting the, a lot of people would say you're hurting the cause of Christ. You're hurting God's church. And, and, and I would always come back and say, calling out abuse doesn't hurt the church. Abuse hurts the church. I'm just exposing it. So. That's a really good point. Yeah. Because, you know, when, um, when I work with people who have who have had narcissistic parents, they're very, very reluctant to really admit the truth. And it's mm -hmm. like, because I don't want to bash my parents, they did the best that mm -hmm. they could. And I tell them, mm -hmm. it's, this is not about bashing your parents, this is about you yes. doing what you need to heal. But in other in order to heal, you must understand what happened to you, you know, mm -hmm. but it's, yes. and this is a very, you know, they, they call these people that, you know, your haters, they call them flying monkeys because they take over and they begin to abuse. Um, and the person who, the real abusers hands stay clean and everybody else attacks. It's, 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 it's maddening. Yes. And is that flying monkeys from the, like the wizard of Oz? Is that where it is? Yes. And in, in the world of narcissistic abuse, um, it's used quite often. Um, yes. and it's because the flying monkeys in the wizard of Oz, they had no mind of their own. They just did whatever the witch told them to do. Hmm. And they would go out and hurt people or 
kill people or whatever it was. And so that um, has been coined, that's been adapted to narcissistic abuse and it's used quite often, but that's really what we call it. Mm -hmm. that's, um, that's good. That's powerful. Yeah. How prevalent do you think sexual abuse is in churches? I believe that many churches are a predator's playground. And so I believe it's very prevalent. And we hear about it in the Catholic Church. And there's this whole thing with the Mormon Church several years ago. So we hear about it different times. But I believe it's prevalent in a lot of churches. And the reason I call it a predator's playground is, you know, in the church that I grew up in, you could dress a certain way. You could carry a big, fat King James Version Bible, and you could talk a certain way. And within a couple of weeks of attending that church, they'll slap you in the uh, the Sunday school room and say, hey, teach Sunday school. And so the abusers can hide behind their shirt and tie or around, you know, behind their dress and behind their Bible and behind their spiritual talk and their lofty prayers. They can hide behind that, be considered spiritual, and then have access to children. And in a in an environment where it's mandated separation of church and state, churches are really their own, they're, they're, they're on their own island, or at least they think they are. And so they don't have to put protections in place and, you know, uh, background checks in, you know, mandated background checks in place or mandated two people in a nursery at a time or something like that. And so predators know that and they come to those churches and they pray on them. And, and I'm not saying every church is like that, but most of the churches that I know of are that predator's playground because of that. So I think it's very prevalent. I agree with you. I think you explained that really well. It is a yeah. great place for them to hide out yeah. um, and not get caught. I've had um, clients come to me who have been abused by their church. They, they went to complain about an abusive spouse and got shamed. Yes, yes. And told us that they need to make this work. And ultimately, the abuser, who is gener generally very, um, you know, friendly and likable, um, they are the one that gets liked, and this person is the one that gets shunned. And um, I hear this a lot. Yes. And, and, and it's I would very... Even... Go ahead. Go, go. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I would even go as far, and I don't know if this would be a very popular statement, but sometimes I wonder if another reason why that's a predator's playground or is because some of these people truly feel bad that they are this sick person, that either they're abusers or whatever, and so they go to church to try to get help. And what they find is they're not getting the help uh, because you, a, a lot of these things you can't go to church to get help for, but they go to church to get help and then realize how easy it is to fall back into that predatory behavior because there are wow. no checks in place and stuff. So I, I don't know if that's the, the case, Randy, but I just wonder sometimes if, if there are, and I'm not excusing abusers, but it just makes me wonder if there are some of them who go to church to get help and then wind up get, being worse. I think it happens. I also think that uh, some leaders, preachers and pastors and things like that are narcissists mm. and they take on this, um, you know, this role yes. because it gives them power over other people and other people's mm -hmm. minds. So I think that is, happens quite often. 
Mm, yes, agreed. And then everyone listens, just like in, in your church. You listen blindly to this person that you trust that's representing God. Yes. And you know, there are a lot of people who would visit our church and leave because of that very thing that you just said. But the ones that stayed just did. They, they listened. They unquestionably obeyed. It's crazy. It is crazy. So backing up. So this woman wanted you to kill her husband. How did she present that to you? You know, at the time, there had been this anarchist cookbook that had come out. And I don't know if it was a print edition or if it had just come out digitally. But somehow I got my hands on a floppy disk drive. This was in 1997. I had gotten my hands on this floppy disk drive of the anarchist cookbook. And so as Carolyn was grooming me and asking me, hey, what do you like to do outside of church and stuff? I told her, hey, I'd like to... Uh, I I like to read this this cookbook because it was fascinating to me as a 16, 17-year-old teenage boy. And I would tell her about different recipes that I would read about. Now, I never did any of these things, but it was fascinating to me to read it. And so there's this one particular recipe where you could supposedly extract tobacco from chewing tobacco and turn it into this toxic liquid and stuff. So I, I had told her about it. So, you know, there's this one one day that we were talking on the phone and she began sobbing on the phone and I said, what's wrong? And she just, she's, she's crying. And she said, I just, I love you so much. And I, the thought of you walking down the aisle one day with another woman in your arms and getting married, just, just breaks my heart, but I don't see any way around it because I'm married. And so she's talking through this. And then she said, Hey, uh, unless my husband disappeared because, and she referenced, you know, I, there's no way we could get divorced and then it, you and I could get married. It wouldn't look good. She was concerned about what it would look like. Um, she's like, we can't get divorced and I couldn't marry you. And then you wouldn't be able to, cause she want, you know, like I said, she would talk dirty and then challenge me spiritually. And so she wanted me to, be a pastor or be an evangelist. And she's like, you couldn't be a pastor if you were married to a divorced woman. But so she's like, unless she's like, what was that recipe you were telling me about where I could put this tobacco, you know, extract in, in his coffee. And so she started going down that path. Um, and, and that's actually what kind of scared the hell out of me and, and got me to be like, whoa, like I didn't realize how psycho this woman was. In fact, two things happened that happened and then about a month earlier, we were at a funeral of a church member that had passed away, and there was a uh, someone that I hadn't seen in years that was at the funeral too. And she, this girl, came up to me and she's like, "Hey, let's get together sometime. It's really good seeing you." And she handed me her phone number on a piece of paper, and Carolyn saw that from across the auditorium, and she came up to me and she's like, "What was that that she gave you?" And and I showed it to her and she grabbed it out of my hands and put it in her mouth and began to chew it up and swallow it. Wow. And yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she says, if you're with me, you're not going to be with anyone else. And so that's, that freaked me out, Randy. Like I just remember being 17 and being like, what? Like I didn't understand it. And so between that and then the conspiracy to kill her husband, uh, that, that scared me enough 
two, and I know this sounds funny, but it scared me enough to call her and say, Hey, can we just be friends? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to continue this relationship. Can we just be friends? And what did she say? She said, yes, but if you ever repeat what happened between us, I will lie and nobody will ever believe you. So don't you ever repeat it. So she threatened me that if I ever repeated it, she would, she would lie about it and that nobody would believe me because I was considered this rebellious teenager and everyone would believe her because she was considered this pillar in the church community. How long did it take for you to get the courage up to really want to reveal her? Well, it took me two years to, to reveal her. The courage to really reveal her happened when I was 36, 37, where, like I said, I looked down at my son's arms, holding him for the first time and realizing this immense responsibility that I had and realizing how... I would be devastated if something ever had happened like that had happened to him. And so between that and then some healing, because I, I went through a pretty rough patch with my, my wife just because of the the baggage and being triggered when, you know, she would come on to me, you know, physically. Um, so there was there was that going on. But, but seeing my son born, holding him in my arms, realizing this is not a safe place for him. This world is not a safe place. And especially the church that we go to is not a safe place. So that's when I was like, you know what, that'll give me the courage to be vulnerable enough to actually say, I am a survivor of male sexual abuse, which isn't popular. This was before the, the Me Too movement. And even post Me Too movement, that was meant largely for women. And I'm so thankful for that. But a, a male saying, admitting that he was sexually abused is not popular and is, is something I'm fighting to change the perception of, but it's, it's not a popular thing. So, mm -hmm. uh, but, but to answer your question, that it was, it was when I was about 36, 37, that I really got the courage to go public with what had happened. Did you have a lot of therapy to help you work through this? Not at first. The only the only motivation I needed was my my son being born. And then as I started to write the book, I wanted to write it not as an expert, but not necessarily as somebody who was still struggling as much as I was struggling. So through the process of writing the book, I went to therapy and, and to several therapists to uh, to get help. Did they get it? Did they get what I, my story or did, did they did they get it? Did they know what to do with this? They did. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 I, I get a lot of help from therapists and, you know, it's, and I'm not recommending, well, I'm recommending that people go see a certified therapist, but I intentionally sought out non-Christian certified therapists. I, I'm sure that there's Christian ones out there, but I didn't want anything to do with those. I wanted, I wanted somebody. So I, I did a lot of searching before I found the most non-Christian type therapist that I could find. <laughs> That's, that just, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, probably trauma therapists. They've, yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Trauma therapists and sex therapists actually. And sex too, therapists. Um, right. Because right. of, because of, like I said, I mean, first time I kissed Emily, my wife, I, I was just shaking and she had to like sit me down and look me in the eyes and say, Justin, I'm not her. And so there's just so much pain that was associated with that part of it too when it came to anything 
sexual. So yeah, sex therapist and trauma therapist for sure. Okay, good, good. Um, and did that help you work through this and be, and be able to have a more normal relationship with your wife? It did. And it did a lot. But what helped me more than anything was my wife. Uh, her her kindness, her patience with me, her support of me uh, helped me more than anything. So I, the therapy did help. But man, Emily, uh, if you if anybody that buys the book reads the foreword, they can see her heart in in the relationship. And I wouldn't be anywhere. In fact, she was the first person that actually pointed out to me at 30 years old, she pointed out to me, you were abused. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I had, I had committed adultery. She's like, no, absolutely. Like she, she was emphatic about it. She was the first person that pointed out and she's been with me every step of the journey. And she has not just been in the, uh, uh, in the crowds cheering me on. She's been in the arena with me fighting every step of the way. Your angel, you met your angel. I did. <laughs> I did. You know, it takes, um, after sexual abuse, trust is very, very difficult to, mm. um, to have. How long did it take you, take her to, to build trust with you to the point where you were okay to, you know, to be with her in a healthy way? Probably eight or nine years. We've been married for 12 years now. Maybe even 10 years. And if you asked her, maybe she might even say 12 years. There, there's still things once in a while. I mean, I, you know, in, in being totally transparent, which is something I always try to do. Last summer, we were outside and this was, we had been married for 11 years by then. But last summer we were outside and she came up to give me a, a kiss, just a simple, not not a suggestive kiss, just a kiss. And I was up against the back porch wall, uh, like the back of the house, and I had nowhere to run. And I know that sounds weird, but when she went to go kiss me, she just saw this terror flash in my eyes. And she, and we had worked so far through so much of that type of stuff where she knew what my trigger, what my triggers were. And so she avoided them at all costs. And so she was devastated that she had triggered me. And I didn't even know that she would because it was just a simple kiss to say goodbye, but I was up against a wall and I had nowhere to run. And I, it just brought me back to the, the first time Carolyn kissed me. She threw me up against the wall, stuck her tongue down my throat, and I was just, I, I couldn't do it. So, um, but, but, yeah. but I would say 10 or 11 years to work through it now, it's just occasionally we find things that happen mm -hmm. that I didn't even know would happen, so... <clears throat> Right. Yeah, I know um, after sexual abuse, <clears throat> trust is a really tough thing. Mm -hmm. So um, so for people who are listening and say, well, you know, I'm a religious person or I have a lot, I have faith in the Christian religion or you know, I want to have a house of worship to go to, to support that. But now you're saying it's dangerous to do that. So what, what would you say to people who want to continue um, with their religious practice? I support that. I, I'm, I'm not against, well, I'm against religion. I'm not against people wanting to have 
to be Christians. Um, wh- what I read in the Bible is a, a, a God who's loving and who says, it's better for you to have a stone tied up on you and you be thrown into the uttermost parts of the sea than for you to offend one of these children. And so that's what I see when I read my Bible. So I support people wanting to be Christians or, or whatever you want to call it. I, I am against religion. I'm not against church, but I'm against religion. And so I, I would just beg parents who say, well, you know, your story's fine for you, but I'm still going to attend a church. Um, just I'll email you the last chapter of my book to, to help tell you what to watch out for uh, and, and stuff like I, I, it doesn't matter, but I, I would just say, watch out. And, and the people, you know, people think of a predator as the Hannibal Lecter type that you see in a movie and stuff like that. And Carolyn was nothing like that. And most predators aren't, otherwise they wouldn't be able to get in and gain the trust. So I, I always, Emily and I always talk about this, the people who we like the most or the most suspicious of, because they're the ones that are going to do something right in front of us or behind our back. And it's the people who we don't trust that we're not as suspicious of, if that makes sense. So um, always be watching, always be looking at that. Don't attend a church that doesn't have background checks in a two-person rule for Sunday schools or, or nurseries. I mean, that's just common sense. And then keep in mind that just because somebody's passed a background check, it might just mean that they're really good and they haven't been caught yet. So there's mm-hmm. there's so many things. So I would say go to church, but be cautious. Never let your guard down. You know, what I try to convey all the time is this is a highly predatory world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not we're not living in a time where you can give people the benefit of the doubt. You can blindly trust people because predators abound. They're everywhere. I think at least one in four people in the global population is predatory. I really do. And um, so you have to have, you've got to be educated and you have to know Mm. what you're looking for. And, um, you know, I have a, a very similar, I I was raised Jewish, but I don't practice it because of the way it was presented to me. It made me, and and I would sit there and I'd be reading the Torah or the book or whatever, and God was always so angry and revengeful, and I'm like, that's not God. (laughs) I don't know what you people are talking about, but that's not God. Yes. So I can relate to that. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you remember a few years ago when uh, Target changed their rule about letting transgender people use the bathroom of their choice or whatever. That was a, a big thing, at least in the circles I grew up in. Is they're just, you know, and I, I saw posters like, if I ever see some guy go into the bathroom where my daughters, I'll beat the crap out of him. And it's, you know, just going off on it. And th- this isn't this isn't me saying whether I agree with it or not. All I know is that I I made a post and I said. You know, while you're, you're chasing down that tra- that transgender person, I'm going to be looking for the the person that is wearing a skirt and carrying a Bible, <laughs> because that's the, to me that's that's more indicative of a predator than a transgender person and uh, and stuff. And, and that's just interesting. Yeah. That's that's a that's an interesting point of view. Yeah, I do have to agree with you. Yeah. Um, so we've pretty much told the story and talked about all this. Is there anything that you feel like you want to leave us with? Yeah. 
there, there are a lot of people, I, one in four girls are sexually molested before they turn 18. One in 13 boys are sexually molested before they turn 18. And so I know that people listening, that they've experienced that and they're in all different walks of life. Some of them have moved on and they're thriving uh, even better than I am. Some of them are still caught up in it. Unfortunately, my experience with being on Facebook and, and following different groups and being in a community of abuse survivors is that they're still healing and they're still hurting from it. And they have not been able to move on. And it took me from the time I was 17 to the time I was almost 40, 41, and I'm, st I'm still doing it, but I hopefully just an encouragement to people that are listening out there that are still suffering from that PTSD or being triggered or whatever, that there is hope and that I don't know if it's time heals all. I'm still trying to figure out what happened in, even in the past year or two where I just, I lost, I didn't lose the desire. I got, I, I found the ability to eat healthier and I've lost almost a hundred pounds and, and my relationship with Emily is better than it ever has been. I, I don't know exactly what that did, um, but I know part of it was time for me and getting, telling my story was part of it too. But I, I just, hopefully it'll be an encouragement for people that, there is, it looks really good on the other side of healing. And I don't mm -hmm. know if I'm there yet, but I'm close and I'm loving it. So I like that message. I really yeah. do. It's, it's, it's a very important for yeah. people to understand that. And I always say, you don't have to hurt. You don't mm. have to suffer. You don't have to hurt. There are That's people right. that can help you. Yes. And it's not, some people are just so resistant to getting help and they think it's going to pull it out of them and they're going to suffer they're going to be traumatized again and everything like that yes you know if that's happening to you you're not with the right person that's right you that's need right. to find just keep finding people until you find the right person that you're comfortable with and that yes. you trust is real important yes yes exactly um so justin you mentioned facebook and you mentioned um email and why don't you tell us how all, all these things, how we can reach you and if there's a website yes. too. Yeah. So I do have the Facebook page sheltered, but not protected. And I have an email address, Justin at sheltered, but not, or sheltered, not protected.com. So the butt's not in there. So Justin at sheltered, not protected.com. Okay. Uh, my website is sheltered, but not protected.com and people can reach me through there. I, I don't really have a phone number that I give out uh, for no. people to, to call, but uh, then if people want to buy the book, they can either reach out to me and I can send them a book or it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's in Walmart. It's, it's on all, it's all through online. I'm not sure if it's in, in any physical bookstores, but it's online. And if you just type in shelter, but not protected, it'll pop up all over the place. Okay. And I urge um, my listeners, if, if, you know, if this is resonating with you or waking something up in you, contact Justin and, you know, share it with him because he is a trusted source that you can talk to. Um, he's been through the trenches and um, he might be a good person to talk to. So reach out. Don't be afraid to reach out and uh, don't feel alone in this. Yes. Wow. What a story. It's so good to know that 
you know, that your life is, has turned around and there's been healing and your relationship's getting better. And, um, how does it feel to be a father? Amazing. Amazing. And I have a, I'm a father of a, a two beautiful kids, one Juliet, she's seven and she just, she's just like her mom, very outgoing, very energetic, very friendly. And then my son is Jackson. He's eight and he has special needs. So he is autistic and he has uh, speech apraxia. So he's nonverbal. And it is such a privilege to walk alongside my kids during their journey and to even be that voice for my son who literally, literally doesn't have a voice. I mean, there's a whole nother side of, of my life that I, I didn't talk about during this interview, but it's my son and the, the constant challenges that he faces every day as somebody who is nonverbal and knows what he wants to say, but just simply can't say it. And if something ever happens to him, he can't tell us either. So we're even more vigilant to protect him from from the bad because even if something happened he couldn't tell us about it and so but anyways it, it's just it's such a privilege to walk alongside them and and watch them grow and have a part in that we love it i love it how does he communicate so he knows some sign language uh, not a lot and then he has a little talker and he can he can push buttons on that talker and he can talk in sentences but he just can't verbalize anything. will he ever be able to Probably not. There's hope. He, we have him in speech almost every day, and he's in an integrated classroom with for kids with special needs and stuff. But uh, they said that we should be hopeful, but not to be disappointed if it didn't happen. And and we're fine if it doesn't. He is an ama- He is perfect just the way he is. And mm-hmm. we we just want him to be all that he can be. We want him to be happy, but we have no expectations for for our little guy. Uh, we're just thrilled with with who he is. Good. Yeah. I'm glad we talked about that a little bit. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's really been great having you. What a great story. Thank you, so um, thank you for letting me share it with you. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate it. And um, I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much, Randy. And thank you for all that you do, too. I, it's a privilege to be on here and to be talking to you. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 